Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. If you're guests, welcome. Welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. We're always excited to have guests with us, so let us know how we can serve you, how we can pray for you. And as always, members know that we are praying for you guys. Uh, we want to be a little bit more diligent in that as well on ways that we can pray for you. So please let us know. You know, call the office, text us, let us know whatever we can do, how we can pray for you throughout the week. Um, <clears throat> with that said, if you're not in the habit of going to Sunday school, I really want to encourage you to go to Sunday school this morning. Um, it was amazing just to be in our prayer group. We pray um, all the Sunday school teachers, we, you know, we spend some time, uh, adult Sunday school teachers, that is, we spend some time praying together in my office. And uh, the, the teachers were so excited to talk about the book of Genesis, like, a, uh, like little children in a candy store. I mean, they were just excited to talk about Jacob, uh, how Jacob uh, wrestled with the Lord. Uh, so know this, that your teachers are excited about the things of God. They're not robots. They're not just here to give you something that they themselves are not being influenced and affected by. They are. They are tremendously affected by what they're saying. They're excited to expound on the Word of God, to live out the Word of God. So I, I really want to encourage you. You're, you're missing out if you're not a part of a Sunday school class. So come, be a part of that, and learn from the Word of God. So with that said, we are in a series on biblical eldership and biblical deaconship. Uh, today will be the last sermon on eldership. So if you are, uh, perhaps you, you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, you can go online. Um, so this is the third sermon on biblical eldership. And next week, we will focus on biblical deaconship. And then we will vote as a church on our elders and deacons. So with that said, turning your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We will be observing verses 4 through 7, and when you've arrived to the text, say, Word. Can you please stand? We stand out of reverence to God's holy and righteous Word. Let me just read verses 1, uh, verse 1 through 7 for just better context for those of you who have not been with us. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care? For God's church, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up and conceited and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the word that you've given us. We do not have to reinvent the will on spiritual leaders. Um, all we have to do is look to the Bible and God follow what the Bible commands. So God, as a church, we're looking to uh, follow the model of spiritual leadership in the Bible, a plurality of elders, a plurality of deacons. Um, and God, our desire, Father, is to share the load, to, to be able to pastor, to lead, to guide um, your people, Father. 
So I pray that you teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not and give us what we do not have. And we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. And God's people says, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Today's sermon is a call for biblical eldership, part two. And as we observe, this is a very important passage of scripture. Have you ever heard of a man by the name of Rob Ford? Rob Ford used to be the mayor of Toronto. I'm I'm, I'm not too sure if he still is right now. But he was voted in several years ago. And prior to Ford being the mayor, he was a member or he was a, uh, the, the city councilor. But Ford was able to get that position without even having the characteristics of a leader. Ford basically said he, he was addicted to pot, addicted to cocaine, and he would talk about it on a consistent basis. Addicted to alcohol, his behavior was absolutely horrible. And, and, and people were excited for Ford to become the mayor. They voted him in to be the mayor, knowing that his characteristics were absolutely horrible. But why did Ford become the mayor? Primarily because of money, because he has a lot of money, and because he seems to be funny, because he, he seems to break the rules all the time, and people are like, we don't care if he's a wholesome man. We don't care if he has family values. We don't care if he has any morals. All we care about is he's funny and he has money, so we'll allow him to be our leader. We see this and we are disgusted by that. And even more so, we should be in the local church. When churches are getting deacons and elders to be in that position that should not be in that position. They would vote a, a deacon or an elder or a pastor just because maybe they're eloquent, maybe because people like them, maybe because they have natural leadership skills. And we say, well, automatically you are an elder. Automatically you are a deacon. Friends, this was the same problem with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, when it was time for them to choose a king, they chose Saul. And notice very carefully why they chose Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, it says his name was Saul. He was wealthy, considered to be the most handsome among the people of Israel, tallest among the people of Israel. So he was tall, he was wealthy, he was handsome, so automatically Saul is the king because of that. But if you notice very carefully, when David was chosen, it was the opposite. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance or the height or the stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. A biblical leader, we should see characteristics, traits, righteousness, exhuming from his life. From their life. It's not because they're eloquent. It's not because they're a good speaker. It's not because they're tall. Not because they, they, they have leadership skills. No friends, no friends, no friends. Coming closer, get this. It is because they are above reproach. They're in love with Jesus. They're living holy lives. And they love people. It is important that we set this 
standard. Because again, a lot of churches would pick leaders with none of these traits. So with that said, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives us the qualification of an elder. The traits and characteristics that he ought to exhibit out of his life. And friends, when I noticed this, and I, I, I made a mistake last week, and I made a, a statement that was not true last week, so I want to take it back. When I said to you, the most important thing that an elder will do is to teach. I want to take that back. The most important thing for an elder to do is to be above reproach. And by being above reproach, he will teach correctly. That's the most important work of an elder. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul has given us. He says he's above reproach, and then he explains to us what does it mean that he is above reproach. I shared with you as well the first sermon that he must aspire to be in that position. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says. If anyone, anyone is not a woman, it's a man. God has called a man to be a pastor. We've explained that. If you want to know more of it, go back to that sermon, right? But here, the Apostle Paul is saying, if any man aspires to be a pastor of a local church, it's a noble task. This aspiration is an aspiration that God has given him, a desire for God and God's people. A desire to speak the word of God. That aspiration was also given to Jeremiah, the whipping prophet. The whipping prophet, as he wept consistently, right? And notice very carefully what Jeremiah mentioned concerning teaching and preaching the word of God for, to God's people. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, he says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, burning a fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. This is the aspiration of the elder. He loves God. He loves God's people. And you cannot put a muzzle on him because he wants to proclaim the word of God to God's people. This is the aspiration here. This is not a, a call in that God all of, all of a sudden he's like, well, Kevin, I'm calling you to the position of eldership, that God's audible voice. No, it's this desire in your heart that you have a great passion for God and God's people. Nothing else. God and God's people. So we explained that to you. And then Last week, we focused on the six qualifications, right? Above reproach, I mentioned that to you. Then he mentions what being above reproach is. First thing, his marriage. Paul is not referring to the status of the marriage rather than his moral and sexual behavior. So Paul is not saying if you've been divorced, then you're disqualified from being an elder or a pastor. No, what the apostle Paul is saying is the quality of your marriage. Are you cherishing your wife? Are you caring for your wife? Are you loving your wife sacrificially? Because we can find a man who's been married to his wife for 50-something years, and he's a deacon or an elder, and we might say, well, he's a one-woman wife because he's only married to one woman, but then he treats his wife horribly. He cheats on his wife. He is disqualified from this. 
Paul is focused more on the quality of marriage. And the quality of marriage will take care of the quantity of marriage. Not only his marriage, the Apostle Paul went on to talk about his self-mastery. He must be sober-minded, self-control, respectable. His ministry, he must be hospitable and able to teach. This is the gift of teaching. His temperament, he mentioned he must not be given too much wine. He must not be addicted to alcohol. He's not violent or quarrelsome. And six, he's not a lover of money. He's not doing it for money. Although the church has a responsibility of taking care of their pastors, nevertheless, he's doing this because of his call to God. His passion is to fulfill the calling that God has upon his life, which is to love God and love people. Simple, love God, love people. This morning, I want us to focus on the remaining three qualifications here. Qualification involves his family, his spiritual maturity, and his reputation among non-believers. I want to say this to you. This is a very convicting passage of Scripture. There's no doubt. Convicting for me as I am pastoring and convicting for the elders who will come up and, 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 and we are voting on them, affirming what God is doing. Definitely it is. It is very convicting. And our job here is to notice the giftings that God has given the church. Notice these qualifications in the life of these men, but to pray for us as well. We're not perfect men by any means possible. We're sinners just like you. But to pray for us. Pray that we would love our wives like Christ loved the church. Pray that we will pastor our family. Pray that we won't be lovers of money. Pray that we won't be addicted to alcohol. Pray that we will be hospitable and able to teach well. You have a responsibility. Don't just stand here and be like, well, all right, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do this. No, you have a job to pray for your pastors. As we have a job to pray for you, we pray for each other. With that said, let's look at the first point, his family. Notice in verses 3 through 4 through 5, verses 4 through 5. Notice in your own Bible, let's read it together. He says here, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. This is a very profound verse that the Apostle Paul is given here. And perhaps elders were neglecting their family in first century Palestine. Perhaps pastors were doing this, and that's why Paul is saying, hey, look, you, you cannot do this, pastor. But not only in Paul's time, but, but great preachers that we know of and great leaders that we know of have neglected their families, leaders such as John Wesley, John Wesley, it says that when his wife was dying, he was uh, traveling to another area, and he heard his wife was dying, and he said, just let her die. I'm busy about the Lord's work. Just let her die. I'm like, come on, dude. Like, seriously. George Whitfield was so focused on preaching that he neglected his entire family. William Carey is another one that as he was on the mission field, that several of his children were not saved, and his wife resented him. Until she passed away, she still resented him she, when she passed away. 
These men were incredible men who did incredible things. But we, we sit and we wonder, we, we, we think to ourselves how much more effective they could have been if they would have pastored their family correctly. And in juxtaposition to them, we have Jonathan Edwards, who had 13 children, who pastored his family, who loved his family. And God brought about the great awakening in America through Jonathan Edwards. But he was a man who pastored his family correctly and biblically. Every day he would pray with his family. And when he died, his wife wrote this letter to his daughter saying, God has given us a great gift, which is your father. So friends, here the Apostle Paul is making it clear. Effective ministry is done first in the home. It is done first in the home as we pastor our children, as we lead our children, as we love our children and our wives. We could have huge ministries of 50,000 people and then our children do not know Christ and, and hate the church and, and, and hate Christ. We've lost everything. You know what the Apostle Paul is saying? Come in closer and don't miss this. A man's ability to handle his family forms a training ground for a man's ability to handle the family of God in a local congregation. Why is that? The same love, and I've learned this over the years, the same love, the same compassion, the same firmness, same mercy are needed in both duties. My family is a training ground for this ministry in the local church. How I pastor my children will determine how I will pastor you. So, so your job should be pastor your family. Pastor them, Kevin. Spend time with your children. Spend time with your wife. Love on them. I'm praying for them. Because if you can do this well, you can do it well with us. If the other elders can do it well at home, they'll be able to do it well here. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. And notice very carefully what he mentions here. He mentions the word manage. He must be able to manage his family. The word in the original language carries the idea of authority and care. It is the same word described in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, describing that of the obligation of an elder to the church. Notice very carefully what it mentions. Let the elder who rule. This is the word manage. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, same word, so manage and rule here. Let the elder who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So here, the Apostle Paul is saying to the elders, manage your family well. This is the adverb that he used. Manage them well. This is the emphasis. The emphasis is not so much on the quality of the performance as it is on doing something in the correct way. So, well is according to the standards of God's word. Lead your family well based on what God has prescribed for you. Do not provoke, to love, to teach, to honor, to care, to discipline. This is how we do it well. So here, specifically, the Apostle Paul is saying that an elder who manages his household well is an elder who will manage the church well. Don't miss this. 
So one of the ways you can pray for your elders, pray that he will manage his household well. Pray for his children. Pray for him. Pray for his wife. But another thing here is quite interesting is when we look at the book of Titus. So Timothy, Timothy in 1 Timothy, we don't see this as much. But Titus, he, Paul says something different, which is kind of confusing for some people. It was for me as well. I want you to see this. I want to invite you into my studies. In Titus chapter 1, 6, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers. Huh. All right, I, let's stop. How is it possible for an elder to have his children as believers? And what I mean by this is, do we disqualify someone whose children are not saved? It's a legitimate question. Because at first glance, this is probably what we're seeing. That to get a pastor, his children must be Christians. But there's a danger here. What if you have a young pastor, a young family? Do we just get the pastor to tell his children to, to recite the Lord's Prayer and the sinner's prayer and get them baptized as quickly as possible? No! That's a tremendous danger. And as a matter of fact, we have a lot of pastors and a lot of Christians who are struggling with that tremendously, where they're quick to get their children to say a sinner's prayer, uh, quick to baptize their children. And then when the children get older, they're disengaged. They show their true fruit. And it's so damaging to the children when we do stuff like that. So is, 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 is Paul saying to make sure we get our children saved before we become a pastor? That's not what he's saying. What exactly is Paul saying here? Notice with me very carefully. The emphasis is on the elders parenting. A person is not ready for the responsibility of others' spiritual welfare if he is not willing and able to take responsibility for those in his own household. This is exactly the emphasis here. But let me explain a little further. First, notice that the Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 1 verse 6 used the Greek word tekna which is the English word children. A tekna is basically a child under the authority of a father. So he, he's not talking about children who grew up and have left the home. So we can have an elder of a church, the children grew up, left the home, are no longer Christians, and we can come to this text and say, he is disqualified from being a pastor. No. Here specifically, he's talking about children who are under his authority, who are still in the home. So here, it gives us a description of that. Secondly, Paul mentions children, plural. So we should not look at just one child behavior or action and disqualify an elder altogether. So we, we look at his children, see if there are true faith, maybe in some, and maybe there are no faith in others. If you have a guy, a pastor, who all of his children are lost, all of them are lost, they're a little older and all of them are lost, then we should say to ourselves, there is a problem here. There is a problem with his parenting. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's saying, children, look at the children all together. And finally, notice with me, and this is important. This is very important. Finally, the word that the Apostle Paul used here in Greek for believe is the word pistas. Pistas is the word translated as believer or faithful. So here specifically, the Apostle Paul is not translating the word as a believer, as the ESV would translate it here, 
but as faithful, which makes a lot of sense because we go back to 1 Timothy and 1 Timothy does not say to us that his children must be a believer. Rather, it says he must, the children must be submissive, which goes back to this word pistos, that his children must be faithful, faithful to him, submissive to him. Not that his children must be a Christian, but his children must be faithful to him. Again, the emphasis is on him managing his household. Are they submissive to him? Are they not submissive to him? If they're not submissive to him, there is a major issue here. So the elder is called to manage his household, to pastor his children and his family, and they must be submissive to him. If there's none of that, there is a major problem. I love what John Piper mentions here. John Piper lists 10 ways that an elder should pastor their children. I love this. This is good. One, he says, make all of life God-saturated. Make all of life God-saturated. Let your children know of your love for God and the purpose of your living. Two, pray with your children. Pray with them. Three, demonstrate the importance of the Bible. Four, be a living example of faith. Five, be happy. Be happy. Six, be disciplined. Be disciplined. Seven, be humble and willing to apologize. Eight, worship together. Nine, uphold standards of everyday holiness. And 10, be loving. Love. Love deeply. These are some wise words from John Piper. So notice what Paul mentions, which is the second point here. Not only must he manage his household or his family, the text also leads to his spiritual maturity, which is our second point. His spiritual maturity. The elder must be spiritually mature. And here specifically, notice with me in verse 6 what the Apostle Paul mentioned here. He must not be a recent convert. Or he may be become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So notice very carefully, he says he must not be a recent convert. The original word in Greek basically means newly planted. This is the English word we derive from. We get this word uh, neophyte from. Neophyte, which is a novice. A neophyte is one who is just beginning a new life altogether. He is a novice altogether. But here specifically, when he talks about a new convert, he's not talking about a young person. So people will see a novice as a young person. A young person is disqualified from being an elder is what they would say because they would be a novice. But a novice is one who is just new to the faith. It doesn't have to do with someone's age. And we know this especially because of Timothy. Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus, and he was a young pastor. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, do not allow anyone to look down upon your age. But Timothy was yet spiritually mature. He was not a novice when it came to his spirituality. 
So when you think about a novice as one who has just become a Christian, recently converted, has not been tested with trials and tribulations and temptations as much as he should, right? So that person should not become an elder. Coming closer and write this down. Spiritual maturity comes from obeying the word, saturating one's life in the word, and being tested because of the word. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. Spiritual maturity comes with you digesting, applying, and obeying the word. I have seen a 16-year-old show so much maturity because of their passion for Jesus and the desire to obey the word. But I've also seen a 70 or 80-year-old person who's been a Christian for 40 years who show a lot of immaturity in their life. My point is, spiritual maturity comes not from you being a Christian for 40, 50 years. It comes from you obeying the word of God, living out the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 mentions, Like newborn infants long for the pure milk, that by it you may grow up in salvation. But this is not just for elders. This is for you as well. You are to be mature in your spiritual life. Where are you? How long have you been saved? Five years? Ten years? Forty years? Fifty years? Are you the same Five years ago as you are today, are you the same? Have you grown spiritually at all? Have you? There's so many stagnant Christians, and they're okay with being stagnant. But friends, you're not called to be stagnant. You're called to be spiritually mature, to grow, and to continue to grow. But notice very carefully what he mentions here about the novice. He says, one of the main reasons you don't want this is that he may become conceited. The word conceited here is smoke, to be filled with smoke and pride. And then he says to us, if that happens, then he will fall into the snare of the devil. And I was thinking of this. This describes really, the word conceited describes the people like the false teachers in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, who live a cloud cuckoo land. They live in cloud cuckoo land. In other words, they, they were constantly considered, conceited in full smoke, a realm of self-centeredness. When I think of this, I, I think of so many things in our culture. One in particular is Johnny Manziel. You remember Johnny Manziel? Johnny football, right? And Johnny won the Heisman in 2012. At the age of 20, he was a freshman, first freshman who had ever won the Heisman. People were so excited about Johnny, how good Johnny was. But Johnny was very conceited, very conceited, very prideful, full of smoke. As a matter of fact, he started acting up and he came to the Manning camp and he got kicked out of the Manning camp. He would go out and drink and, and go out to the clubs and stay out late at night. And, and we noticed that Johnny, Johnny Manziel, Johnny Football, became Johnny Problem. He was given this title. He was given honor so quickly it got to his head and he was full of smoke. In the same way here, I, I, I believe what Paul is saying to not, don't do that to a novice. That he must be spiritually mature. Or he will fall in the same condemnation as the devil. You know what condemnation Satan fell into? 
condemnation of pride. In Isaiah chapter 14, it says Satan is recorded by Satan five I will statement. I will establish. I will achieve. I, 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 I. Five times. And God says, okay, you're cast out of my presence. Why? Because of pride. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 19, 18 says, pride goes before the destruction and a haughty spirit before the stumbling. And finally, friends, finally, we've noticed first, we've noticed as family, we've noticed second, um, the importance of him loving people, right? Here we notice his reputation among non-believers. His reputation among non-believers. I love this because he begins first with his, him being approached, uh, above reproach within the church. And he ends with him being above reproach toward those who are outside, right? So, so here he wants us to literally see what it means to be above reproach. A good reputation in the original Greek language literally means beautiful witness, he has a beautiful witness. And down several um, years ago, there was a, a church that hired Guy to be their pastor. They needed a pastor so badly, so they decided, hey, look, we're going to overlook a lot of things, and we'll just get him to come. Seems to be a good preacher. He's preached before. They got him to come, and he was preaching. Um, stayed there for about a year. And one time at a huddle house, somebody said something to him, and he went and punched the guy out. Just punched him out. Straight, punched him out. Went in the pulpit and says, no one's going to touch me. No one's going to talk about me. No one's going to do this. And the church is like all excited. Yeah, we got a pastor who's going to defend himself. You know, and I'm like, this is a major issue. So what he, what he did was he lost his witness. So anytime, anytime I would meet people in that community, they would refer to that pastor as Mike Tyson. <laughs> Mike Tyson, the pastor who punched people out. This is the witness we do not want. Here, he says he must have beautiful witness, a good reputation towards those who are outside. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. How is his reputation with those who are non-Christians? This is what we're called to do here. This is what we're called to see here. Coming closer and don't miss this. As the church carries out its mission in an increasing secular world, the church needs those who build bridges with unbelievers in order to bring them the gospel. And your leaders set the pace. How are your leaders' reputation with those who are not saved? What are they saying about him? Is he a thief, a liar, prideful, hateful? Or are they saying, man, this man loves God and loves people. Even lost people should see these things. They might not fully understand it, but they see it. With that said, friends, these are the qualification of an elder. It's given to us in Scripture. Go back and read it. 
See for yourself. And on the 29th of this month, your job is simply to affirm what Scripture is saying, what God is doing in the lives of these, these men. Do you see it in their lives? A husband of one wife. He manages his family well. He's not addicted to much wine. He's not a lover of money. He's above reproach and he has a good reputation among those who are outside. You have it. And you need to affirm what God is doing in the lives of these men. So with that said, join me as we pray together. Father, your mercy is so, so good. And thank you that when you died on the cross, that you save us when we place our faith in you, that you did not leave us to ourselves that you gave us the church where you are the head of the church. You gave us your word that we can follow in scripture and obey. God, our desire is to just worship you, obey you, and to live for you. So as we search deeply in our hearts and search deeply in scripture, God, bring a sense of peace to our hearts. Continue to speak to the men that you're calling God to be elders and a deacon. Continue to work mightily in their hearts, God. And I pray for us as a church, we are rejoicing and praying for these men. Praying for what you're doing in your local church, oh Lord. God, we are thankful for everything. In your mighty and precious name, amen, amen.